Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody comes back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? The Horror of the Heights by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle The idea that the extraordinary narrative which has been called the Joyce Armstrong fragment is an elaborate practical joke evolved by some unknown person cursed by a perverted and sinister sense of humour has now been abandoned by all who have examined the matter. The most macabre and imaginative of plotters would hesitate before linking his morbid fancies with the unquestioned and tragic facts which reinforce the statement. Though the assertions contained in it are amazing and even monstrous, it is nonetheless forcing itself upon the general intelligence that they are true, and that we must readjust our ideas to the new situation. This world of ours appears to be separated by a slight and precarious margin of safety from a most singular and unexpected danger. I will endeavour in this narrative, which reproduces the original document in its necessarily somewhat fragmentary form, to lay before the reader the whole of the facts up to date, prefacing my statement by saying that, if there be any who doubt the narrative of Joyce Armstrong, there can be no question at all as to the facts concerning Lieutenant Myrtle, Royal Navy, and Mr. Hay Connor, who undoubtedly met their end in the manner described. The Joyce Armstrong fragment was found in the field which is called Lower Haycock, lying one mile to the westward of the village of Withiam, upon the Kent and Sussex border. It was on the 15th September last that an agricultural labourer, James Flynn, in the employment of Matthew Dodd, farmer of the Chauntry Farm Withiam, perceived a briar pipe lying near the footpath which skirts the hedge in Lower Haycock. A few paces farther on he picked up a pair of broken binocular glasses. Finally, among some nettles in the ditch, he caught sight of a flat, canvas-backed book, which proved to be a notebook with detachable leaves, some of which had come loose and were fluttering along the base of the hedge. These he collected, but some, including the first, were never recovered, and leave a deplorable hiatus in his all-important statement. The notebook was taken by the labourer to his master, who in turn showed it to Dr. J. H. Atherton of Hartfield. This gentleman at once recognised the need for an expert examination, and the manuscript was forwarded to the Aero Club in London, where it now lies. The first two pages of the manuscript are missing. There is also one torn away at the end of the narrative, uh, though none of these affect the general coherence of the story. It is conjectured that the missing opening is concerned with the record of Mr. Joyce Armstrong's qualifications as an aeronaut, which can be gathered from other sources, and are admitted to be unsurpassed among the air pilots of England. For many years he has been looked upon as among the most daring and the most intellectual of flying men, a combination which has enabled him both to invent and test several new devices, including the common gyroscopic attachment which is known by his name. The main body of the manuscript is written neatly in ink, but the last few lines are in pencil and are so ragged as to be hardly legible, exactly, in fact, as they might be expected to appear if they were scribbled off hurriedly from the seat of a moving aeroplane. There are, it may be added, several stains, both on the last page and on the outside cover, which have been pronounced by the Home Office experts to be blood, probably human and certainly mammalian. 
The fact that something closely resembling the organism of malaria was discovered in this blood, and that Joyce Armstrong is known to have suffered from intermittent fever, is a remarkable example of the new weapons which modern science has placed in the hands of our detectives. And now a word as to the personality of the author of this epoch-making statement. Joyce Armstrong, according to the few friends who really knew something of the man, was a poet and a dreamer, as well as a mechanic and an inventor. He was a man of considerable wealth, much of which he had spent in the pursuit of his aeronautical hobby. He had four private aeroplanes in his hangars near Devizes, and is said to have made no fewer than 170 ascents in the course of last year. He was a retiring man with dark moods, in which he would avoid the society of his fellows. Captain Dangerfield, who knew him better than anyone, says that there were times when his eccentricity threatened to develop into something more serious. His habit of carrying a shotgun with him in his aeroplane was one manifestation of it. Another was the morbid effect which the fall of Lieutenant Myrtle had upon his mind. Myrtle, who was attempting the height record, fell from an altitude of something over 30,000 feet. Horrible to narrate, his head was entirely obliterated, although his body and limbs preserved their configuration. At every gathering of airmen, Joyce Armstrong, according to Dangerfield, would ask with an enigmatic smile, And where, pray? is Myrtle's head. On another occasion after dinner at the mess of the Flying School on Salisbury Plain, he started a debate as to what will be the most permanent danger which airmen will have to encounter. Having listened to successive opinions as to air pockets, faulty construction and overbanking, he ended by shrugging his shoulders and refusing to put forward his own views, though he gave the impression that they differed from any advanced by his companions. It is worth remarking that after his own complete disappearance, it was found that his private affairs were arranged with a precision which may show that he had a strong premonition of disaster. With these essential explanations, I will now give the narrative exactly as it stands, beginning at page three of the blood-soaked notebook. Nevertheless, when I dined at Reims with Caselli and Gustave Raymond, I found that neither of them was aware of any particular danger in the higher layers of the atmosphere. I did not exactly say what was in my thoughts, but I got so near to it that if they had any corresponding idea, they could not have failed to express it. But then they are two empty, vainglorious fellows, with no thought beyond seeing their silly names in the newspaper. It is interesting to note that neither of them has ever been much beyond the 25,000-foot level. Of course, men have been higher than this, both in balloons and in the ascent of mountains. It must be well above that point that the aeroplane enters the danger zone, always presuming that my premonitions are correct. Aeroplaning has been with us now for more than 20 years, and one might well ask, why should this peril be only revealing itself in our day? The answer is obvious. In the old days of weak engines, when a hundred horsepower no more green was considered ample for every need, the flights were very restricted. Now that three hundred horsepower is the rule rather than the exception, visits to the upper layers have become easier and more common. Some of us can remember how, in our youth, Garros made a worldwide reputation by attaining nineteen thousand feet 
and it was considered a remarkable achievement to fly over the Alps. Our standard now has been immeasurably raised, and there are twenty high flights for one in former years. Many of them have been taken with impunity. The thirty-thousand-foot level has been reached time after time with no discomfort beyond cold and asthma. What does this prove? A visitor might descend upon this planet a thousand times and never see a tiger. Yet, tigers exist. And if he chanced to come down into a jungle, he might be devoured. There are jungles of the upper air. And there are worse things than tigers which inhabit them. I believe in time they will map these jungles accurately out. Even at the present moment I could name two of them. One of them lies over the Paubiaritz district of France. Another is just over my head as I write here in my house in Wiltshire. I rather think there is a third in the Homburg-Wiesbaden district. It was the disappearance of the airmen that first set me thinking. Of course, everyone said that they had fallen into the sea, but that did not satisfy me at all. First there was Verrier in France. His machine was found near Bayonne, but they never got his body. There was the case of Baxter also, who vanished, though his engine and some of the iron fixings were found in a wood in Leicestershire. In that case, Dr. Middleton of Amesbury, who was watching the flight with a telescope, declares that just before the clouds obscured the view, he saw the machine, which was at an enormous height, suddenly rise perpendicularly upwards in a succession of jerks in a manner that he would have thought to be impossible. That was the last scene of Baxter. There was a correspondence in the papers, but it never led to anything. There were several other similar cases, and then there was the death of Hay Connor. What a cackle there was about an unsolved mystery of the air, and what columns in the halfpenny papers, and yet how little was ever done to get to the bottom of the business. He came down in a tremendous vol plan from an unknown height. He never got off his machine and died in his pilot's seat. Died of what? Heart disease, said the doctors. Rubbish. Hey, Connor's heart was as sound as mine is. What did Venables say? Venables was the only man who was at his side when he died. He said that he was shivering and looked like a man who had been badly scared. Died of fright, said Venables, but could not imagine what he was frightened about. Only said one word to Venables, which sounded like monstrous. They could make nothing of that at the inquest. But I could make something of it. Monsters. That was the last word of poor Harry Hay Connor. And he did die of fright, just as Venables thought. And then there was Myrtle's head. Do you really believe, does anybody really believe, that a man's head will be driven clean into his body by the force of a fall? Well, perhaps it may be possible, but I, for one, have never believed that it was so with Myrtle. And the grease upon his clothes, all slimy with grease, said someone at the inquest. Queer that nobody got thinking after that. I did, but then I had been thinking for a good long time. I made three ascents. How Dangerfield used to chaff me about my shotgun, but I'd never been high enough. Now, with this new light Paul Verona machine and its 175 roba, I should easily touch the 30,000 tomorrow. I'll have a shot at the record. Maybe I shall have a shot at something else as well. Of course it's dangerous. 
If a fellow wants to avoid danger, he had best keep out of flying altogether and subside finally into flannel slippers and a dressing gown. But I'll visit the air jungle tomorrow, and if there's anything there, I shall know it. If I return, I'll find myself a bit of a celebrity. If I don't, this notebook may explain what I'm trying to do, and how I lost my life in doing it. But no drivel about accidents or mysteries, if you please. I chose my poor Verona monoplane for the job. Uh, there's nothing like a monoplane when real work is to be done. Beaumont found that out in the very early days. For one thing, it doesn't mind damp, and the weather looks as if we should be in the clouds all the time. It's a bonny little model, and answers my hand like a tender-mouthed horse. The engine is a ten-cylinder rotary rover working up to 175. It has all the modern improvements, enclosed fuselage, high-curved landing skids, brakes, gyroscopic steadiers, and three speeds worked by an alteration of the angle of the planes upon the Venetian blind principle. I took a shotgun with me, and a dozen cartridges filled with buckshot. You should have seen the face of Perkins, my old mechanic, when I directed him to put them in. I was dressed like an Arctic explorer, with two jerseys under my overalls, thick socks inside my padded boots, a storm cap with flaps, and my talc goggles. It was stifling outside the hangars, but I was going for the summit of the Himalayas and had to dress for the part. Perkins knew there was something on, and implored me to take him with me. Perhaps I should if I were using the biplane, but a monoplane's a one-man show if you want to get the last foot of life out of it. Of course, I took an oxygen bag. The man who goes for the altitude record without one will either be frozen or smothered, all both. But I had a good look at the planes, the rudder bar, and the elevating lever before I got in. Everything was in order, so far as I could see. Then I switched on my engine, and found that she was running sweetly. When they let her go, she rose almost at once upon the lowest speed. I circled my home field once or twice just to warm her up, and then, with a wave to Perkins and the others, I flattened out my planes and put her on her highest. She skimmed like a swallow downwind for eight or ten miles, until I turned her nose up a little, and she began to climb in a great spiral for the cloud bank above me. It's all important to rise slowly and adapt yourself to the pressure as you go. It was a close, warm day for an English September, and there was the hush and heaviness of impending rain. Now and then came sudden puffs of wind from the southwest, one of them so gusty and unexpected that it caught me napping and turned me half round for an instant. I remember the time when gusts and whirls and air pockets used to be things of danger before we learned to put an overmastering power into our engines. Just as I reached the cloud banks, with the altimeter marking three thousand, down came the rain. My word, how it poured. It drummed upon my wings and lashed against my face, blurring my glasses so that I could hardly see. I got down onto a low speed, for it was painful to travel against it. As I got higher, it became hail, and I had to turn tail to it. One of my cylinders was out of action, a dirty plug, I should imagine, but still I was rising steadily with plenty of power. After a bit the trouble passed, whatever it was, and I heard the full, deep-throated purr, the ten, singing as one. That's where the beauty of our modern silences comes in. We can at last control our engines by ear. 
How they squeal and squeak and sob when they are in trouble. All those cries for help were wasted in the old days when every sound was swallowed up by the monstrous racket of the machine. If only the early aviators could come back to see the beauty and perfection of the mechanism which have been bought at the cost of their lives. About 9.30 I was nearing the clouds. Down below me, all blurred and shadowed with rain, lay the vast expanse of Salisbury Plain. Half a dozen flying machines were doing hack work at the thousand-foot level, looking like little black swallows against the green background. I dare say they were wondering what I was doing up in Cloudland. Suddenly a grey curtain drew across beneath me, and the wet folds of vapours were swirling round my face. It was clamorly cold and miserable, but I was above the hailstorm, and that was something gained. The cloud was as dark and thick as a London fog. In my anxiety to get clear, I cocked her nose up until the automatic alarm bell rang, and I actually began to slide backwards. My sopped and dripping wings had made me heavier than I thought, but presently I was in lighter cloud, and soon had cleared the first layer. There was a second, opal-coloured and fleecy, at a great height above my head, a white, unbroken ceiling above, and a dark, unbroken floor below, with a monoplane labouring upwards upon a vast spiral between them. It is deadly lonely in these cloud spaces. Once a great flight of some small water-birds went past me, flying very fast to the westwards. The quick whir of their wings and their musical cry were cheery to my ear. I fancied that they were teal, but I am a wretched zoologist. Now that we humans have become birds, we must really learn to know our brethren by sight. The wind down beneath me whirled and swayed the broad cloud plain. Once a great eddy formed in it, a whirlpool of vapour, and through it, as down a funnel, I caught sight of the distant world. A large white biplane was passing at a vast depth beneath me. I fancy it was the morning mail service betwixt Bristol and London. Then the drift swirled inwards again, and the great solitude was unbroken. Just after ten I touched the lower edge of the upper cloud stratum. It consisted of fine diaphanous vapour drifting swiftly from the westwards. The wind had been steadily rising all this time, and it was now blowing a sharp breeze, twenty-eight an hour by my gauge. Already it was very cold, although my altimeter only marked nine thousand. The engines were working beautifully, and we went droning steadily upwards. The cloud bank was thicker than I had expected, but at last it thinned out into a golden mist before me, and then, in an instant, I had shot out from it, and there was an unclouded sky and a brilliant sun above my head, all blue and gold above, all shining silver below, one vast glimmering plain as far as my eyes could reach. It was a quarter past ten o'clock, and the barograph needle pointed to twelve thousand eight hundred. Up I went and up, my ears concentrated upon the deep purring of my motor, my eyes busy always with the watch, the revolution indicator, the petrol lever, and the oil pump. No wonder aviators are said to be a fearless race. With so many things to think of, there's no time to trouble about oneself. About this time, I noted how unreliable is the compass when above a certain height from earth. At fifteen thousand feet, mine was pointing east and a point south. The sun and wind gave me my true bearings. I had hoped to reach an eternal stillness in these high altitudes, 
but with every thousand feet of ascent the gale grew stronger. My machine groaned and trembled in every joint and rivet as she faced it, and swept away like a sheet of paper when I banked her on the turn, skimming down wind at a greater pace, perhaps, than ever mortal man has moved. Yet I always had to turn again and tack up in the wind's eye, for it was not merely a height record that I was after. By all my calculations it was above Little Wiltshire that my air jungle lay, and all my labour might be lost if I struck the outer layers at some farther point. When I reached the nineteen thousand foot level, which was about midday, the wind was so severe that I looked with some anxiety to the stays of my wings, expecting, momentarily, to see them snap or slacken. I even cast loose the parachute behind me, and fastened its hook into the ring of my leathern belt, so as to be ready for the worst. Now was the time when a bit of scamped work by the mechanic is paid for by the life of the aeronaut. But she held together bravely. Every chord and strut was humming and vibrating like so many harp-strings, but it was glorious to see how, for all the beating and the buffeting, she was still the conqueror of nature and the mistress of the sky. There is surely something divine in man himself that he should rise so superior to the limitations which creation seemed to impose, rise too by such unselfish, heroic devotion as this air conquest has shown. Talk of human degeneration, when has such a story as this been written in the annals of our race? These were the thoughts in my head as I climbed that monstrous inclined plane, with the wind sometimes beating in my face and sometimes whistling behind my ears while the cloudland beneath me fell away to such a distance that the folds and the hummocks of silver had all smoothed out into one flat, shining plain. But suddenly I had a horrible and unprecedented experience. I have known before what it is to be in what our neighbours have called a tourbillon, but never on such a scale as this. That huge, sweeping river of wind of which I have spoken had, as it appears, whirlpools within it which were as monstrous as itself. Without a moment's warning I was dragged suddenly into the heart of one. I spun round for a minute or two with such velocity that I almost lost my senses, and then fell suddenly, left wing foremost, down the vacuum funnel in the centre. I dropped like a stone and lost nearly a thousand feet. It was only my belt that kept me in my seat, and the shock and breathlessness left me hanging half insensible over the side of the fuselage. But I am always capable of a supreme effort, it is my one great merit as an aviator. I was conscious that the descent was slower, the whirlpool was a cone rather than a funnel, and I had come to the apex. With a terrific wrench throwing my weight all to one side, I levelled my planes and brought her head away from the wind. In an instant I had shot out of the eddies and was skimming down the sky. Then, shaken but victorious, I turned her nose up and began once more my steady grind on the upward spiral. I took a large sweep to avoid the danger spot of the whirlpool, and soon I was safely above it. Just after one o'clock I was twenty-one thousand feet above the sea level. To my great joy I had topped the gale, and with every hundred feet of ascent the air grew stiller. On the other hand it was very cold, and I was conscious of that peculiar nausea which goes with rarefaction of the air. For the first time I unscrewed the mouth of my oxygen bag and took an occasional whiff of the glorious gas. I could feel it running like a cordial through my veins, 
and I was exhilarated almost to the point of drunkenness. I shouted and sang as I soared upwards into the cold, still outer world. It's very clear to me that the insensibility which came upon Glacier and, in a lesser degree, upon Coxwell when, in 1862, they ascended in a balloon to the height of 30,000 feet was due to the extreme speed with which a perpendicular ascent is made. Doing it at an easy gradient and accustoming oneself to the lessened barometric pressure by slow degrees, there are no such dreadful symptoms. At the same great height, I found that even without my oxygen inhaler I could breathe without undue distress. It was bitterly cold, however, and my thermometer was at zero Fahrenheit. At one thirty, I was nearly seven miles above the surface of the earth and still ascending steadily. I found, however, that the rarefied air was giving markedly less support to my planes and that my angle of ascent had to be considerably lowered in consequence. It was already clear that even with my light weight and strong engine power, there was a point in front of me where I should be held. To make matters worse, one of my sparking plugs was in trouble again, and there was intermittent misfiring in the engine. My heart was heavy with the fear of failure. It was about that time that I had a most extraordinary experience. Something whizzed past me in a trail of smoke and exploded with a loud hissing sound, sending forth a cloud of steam. For the instant I could not imagine what had happened. Then I remembered that the earth is forever being bombarded by meteor stones, and would be hardly inhabitable were they not in nearly every case turned to vapour in the outer layers of the atmosphere. Here's a new danger for the high-altitude man, for two others passed me when I was nearing the forty-thousand-foot mark. I cannot doubt that at the edge of the earth's envelope the risk would be a very real one. My paragraph needle marked forty-one thousand three hundred when I became aware that I could go no further. Physically, the strain was not as yet greater than I could bear, but my machine had reached its limit. The attenuated air gave no firm support to the wings, and the least tilt developed into side-slip, while she seemed sluggish on her controls. Probably, had the engine been at its best, another thousand feet might have been within our capacity, but it was still misfiring, and two out of ten cylinders appeared to be out of action. If I had not already reached the zone for which I was searching, then I should never see it upon this journey. But was it not possible that I had attained it? Soaring in circles like a great monstrous hawk upon the forty-thousand-foot level, I let the monoplane guide herself, and with my Mannheim glass I made a careful observation of my surroundings. The heavens were perfectly clear, there was no indication of those dangers which I had imagined. I have said that I was soaring in circles. It struck me suddenly that I would do well to take a wider sweep and open up a new air tract. If the hunter entered an earth jungle, he would drive through it if he wished to find his game. My reasoning had led me to believe that the air jungle which I had imagined lay somewhere over Wiltshire should be to the south and west of me. I took my bearings from the sun for the compass was hopeless, and no trace of earth was to be seen, nothing but the distant silver cloud plain. However, I got my direction as best I might, and kept her head straight to the mark. I reckoned that my petrol supply would not last for more than another hour or so, but I could afford to use it to the last drop, since a single magnificent volplan 
could at any time take me to the earth. Suddenly I was aware of something new. The air in front of me had lost its crystal clearness. It was full of long, ragged wisps of something which I can only compare to very fine cigarette smoke. It hung about in wreaths and coils, turning and twisting slowly in the sunlight. As the monoplane shot through it, I was aware of a faint taste of oil upon my lips, and there was a greasy scum upon the woodwork of the machine. Some infinitely fine organic matter appeared to be suspended in the atmosphere. There was no life there. It was inchoate and diffuse, extending for many square acres and then fringing off into the void. No, it was not life. But might it not be the remains of life? Above all, might it not be the food of life, of monstrous life, even as the humble grease of the ocean is the food for the mighty whale? The thought was in my mind when my eyes looked upward, and I saw the most wonderful vision that ever man has seen. Can I hope to convey it to you, even as I saw it myself last Thursday? Conceive a jellyfish, such as sails in our summer seas, bell-shaped and of enormous size. Far larger, I should judge, than the dome of St. Paul's. It was of a light pink colour, veined with a delicate green, but the whole huge fabric so tenuous that it was but a fairy outline against the dark blue sky. It pulsated with a delicate and regular rhythm. From it there depended two long, drooping green tentacles, which swayed slowly backwards and forwards. This gorgeous vision passed gently with noiseless dignity over my head, as light and fragile as a soap bubble, and drifted upon its stately way. I had half turned my monoplane that I might look after this beautiful creature, when in a moment I found myself amidst a perfect fleet of them, of all sizes, but none so large as the first. Some were quite small, but the majority about as big as an average balloon, and with much the same curvature at the top. There was in them a delicacy of texture and colouring which reminded me of the finest Venetian glass. Pale shades of pink and green were the prevailing tints, but all had a lovely iridescence where the sun shimmered through their dainty forms. Some hundreds of them drifted past me, a wonderful fairy squadron of strange, unknown argosies of the sky. Creatures whose forms and substance were so attuned to these pure heights that one could not conceive anything so delicate within actual sight or sound of earth. But soon my attention was drawn to a new phenomenon, the serpents of the outer air. These were long, thin, fantastic coils of vapour-like material, which turned and twisted with great speed, flying round and round at such a pace that the eyes could hardly follow them. Some of these ghost-like creatures were twenty or thirty feet long, but it was difficult to tell their girth, for their outline was so hazy that it seemed to fade away into the air around them. These air snakes were of a very light grey or smoke colour, with some darker lines within which gave the impression of a definite organism. One of them whisked past my very face, and I was conscious of a cold, clammy contact. But their composition was so unsubstantial that I could not connect them with any thought of physical danger, any more than the beautiful bell-like creatures which had preceded them. There was no more solidity in their frames than in the floating spume from a broken wave. But a more terrible experience was in store for me. 
Floating downwards from a great height, there came a purplish patch of vapour, small, as I saw at first, but rapidly enlarging as it approached me, until it appeared to be hundreds of square feet in size. Though fashioned of some transparent jelly-like substance, it was nonetheless of much more definite outline and solid consistence than anything which I had seen before. There were more traces, too, of a physical organisation, especially two vast shadowy circular plates upon either side which may have been eyes, and a perfectly solid white projection between them which was as curved and cruel as the beak of a vulture. The whole aspect of this monster was formidable and threatening, and it kept changing its colour from a very light mauve to a dark angry purple, so thick that it cast a shadow as it drifted between my monoplane and the sun. On the upper curve of its huge body there were three great projections, which I can only describe as enormous bubbles, and I was convinced, as I looked at them, that they were charged with some extremely light gas which served to buoy up the misshapen and semi-solid mass in the rarefied air. The creature moved swiftly along, keeping pace easily with the monoplane, and for twenty miles or more it formed my horrible escort, hovering over me like a bird of prey which is waiting to pounce. Its method of progression, done so swiftly that it was not easy to follow, was to throw out a long, glutinous streamer in front of it, which in turn seemed to draw the rest of the writhing body. So elastic and gelatinous was it, that never for two successive minutes was it the same shape, and yet each change made it more threatening and loathsome than the last. I knew that it meant mischief. Every purple flush of its hideous body told me so. The vague, goggling eyes which were turned always upon me were cold and merciless in their viscid hatred. I dipped the nose of my monoplane downwards to escape it. As I did so, as quick as a flash, there shot out a long tentacle from this mass of floating blubber, and it fell as light and sinuous as a whiplash across the front of my machine. There was a loud hiss as it lay for a moment across the hot engine, and then it whisked itself into the air again, while a huge flat body drew itself together as if in sudden pain. I dipped into a vault peak, but again a tentacle fell over the monoplane and was shorn off by the propeller as easily as it might have cut through a smoke wreath. A long, gliding, sticky, serpent-like coil came from behind and caught me round the waist, dragging me out of the fuselage. I tore at it, my fingers sinking into the smooth, glue-like surface, and for an instant I disengaged myself, but only to be caught round the boot by another coil, which gave me a jerk that tilted me almost onto my back. As I fell over, I blazed off both barrels of my gun, though indeed it was like attacking an elephant with a pea-shooter to imagine that any human weapon could cripple that mighty bulk. And yet... I aimed better than I knew, for, with a loud report, one of the great blisters upon the creature's back exploded with the puncture of the buckshot. It was very clear that my conjecture was right, and that these vast clear bladders were distended with some lifting gas, for, in an instant, the huge, cloud-like body turned sideways, writhing desperately to find its balance, while the white beak snapped and gaped in horrible fury but already I had shot away on the steepest glide that I dared to attempt, my engine still full on, the flying propeller and the force of gravity shooting me downwards like an aerolite. 
From behind me I saw a dull purplish smudge growing swiftly smaller and merging into the blue sky behind it. I was safely out of the deadly jungle of the outer air. Once out of danger, I throttled my engine, for nothing tears a machine to pieces quicker than running on full power from a height. It was a glorious spiral volplan from nearly eight miles of altitude, first to the level of the silver cloud bank, and then to that of the storm cloud beneath it, and finally, in beating rain, to the surface of the earth. I saw the Bristol Channel beneath me as I broke from the clouds, but having still some petrol in my tank, I got twenty miles inland before I found myself stranded in a field half a mile from the village of Ashcombe. There I got three tins of petrol from a passing car, and at ten minutes past six that evening I alighted gently in my own home meadow at Devizes, after such a journey as no mortal upon earth has ever yet taken and lived to tell the tale. I have seen the beauty, and I have seen the horror of the heights, and greater beauty or greater horror than that is not within the ken of man. And now it is my plan to go once again before I give my results to the world. My reason for this is that I must surely have something to show by way of proof before I lay such a tale before my fellow men. It is true that others will soon follow and will confirm what I have said, and yet I should wish to carry conviction from the first. Those lovely iridescent bubbles of the air should not be hard to capture. They drift slowly on their way, and the swift monoplane could intercept their leisurely course. It is likely enough that they would dissolve in the heavier layers of the atmosphere, and that some small heap of amorphous jelly might be all that I should bring to earth with me and yet something there would surely be by which I could substantiate my story. Yes, I will go, even if I run a risk by doing so. These purple horrors would not seem to be numerous. It is probable that I shall not see one. If I do, I shall dive again. At the worst, there is always the shotgun and my knowledge of— Here a page of the manuscript is unfortunately missing. On the next page is written, in large, straggling writing, Forty-three thousand feet. I shall never see earth again. They are beneath me, three of them. God help me. It is a dreadful death to die. Such, in its entirety, is the Joyce Armstrong statement. Of the man, nothing has since been seen. Pieces of his shattered monoplane have been picked up in the preserves of Mr. Bud Lushington, upon the borders of Kent and Sussex, within a few miles of the spot where the notebook was discovered. If the unfortunate aviator's theory is correct that this um, air jungle, as he called it, existed only over the southwest of England, then it would seem that he had fled from it at the full speed of his monoplane, but had been overtaken and devoured by these horrible creatures at some spot in the outer atmosphere above the place where the grim relics were found. The picture of that monoplane skimming down from the sky, with the nameless terrors flying as swiftly beneath it and cutting it off always from the earth while they gradually closed in upon their victim, is one upon which a man, who valued his sanity, would prefer not to dwell. There are many, as I am aware, who still jeer at the facts which I have here set down, but even they must admit that Joyce Armstrong has disappeared and I would commend to them his own words. 
This notebook may explain what I'm trying to do and how I lost my life in doing it, but no drivel about accidents or mysteries, if you please. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? So that was The Terror of the Heights by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Let me tell you, and it, I should say it was recommended by one of my patrons, Molly Ireland, who um, is not from Ireland, she's from Kansas. And I know that because I was talking to her last night on our Discord server, which we have a bit of a chat every two weeks. Anyway, so um, that being said, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was a renowned British writer and physician, best known for creating the famous detective character, Sherlock Holmes, or as my grandmother used to call him, Sherlock. I don't know why she called him that, but we, uh, she had an uncle, Shadrach, who was also known as Uncle Shed. They called him Shedrick. I don't know why they changed the vowels on these things, but anyway. So Sherlock Holmes, he was born on May 22nd, 1859 in Edinburgh, Edinburgh, Scotland, to Charles Altamont Doyle and Mary Foley Doyle, and also he was, he was uh, uh, educated at the Jesuit Preparatory School of Hodder Place and Stonyhurst College. Le I went there once. It's a, uh, it's near a golf club. It's really nice. It's in Lancashire, Stonyhurst, massive place. Uh, really, it looks like a, what a wonderful place that would be to go to school. It's a school now. Well, it was then, wasn't it? Yeah. Later, Conan Doyle studied medicine at the University of Edinburgh and graduated in 1881. So, after completing his medical studies, Conan Doyle worked as a ship's doctor on various voyages, including a whaling expedition. I still like saying uh, to the Arctic. I wouldn't say it in normal speech. I wouldn't say. It was a thing, when I lived in Wales, there was a thing called Get God Bless the Prince of Wales. But it was like a prince, like a mezzotint of these big ocean-going cetaceans, is that what you call them? Anyway, so Conan Doyle was very familiar with them because he went, went to the Arctic. He also served as a surgeon on a British steamship travelling to West Africa. These experiences provided him with a rich source of inspiration for his future, future writing, as they would. Conan Doyle's career as a writer took off when he began publishing short stories and novels. He's, well, what else was he writing? Newspaper articles, maybe. Sherlock Holmes, his most notable creation, made his first appearance in the novel A Study in Scarlet in 1887. The character of Holmes, with his keen powers of observation and deductive reasoning, quickly became immensely popular, as you know. So he wrote loads and loads of stories about him and John Watson and Hounds of the Baskerville, The Adventures of Sherlock Holmes, made Conan Doyle one of the most widely read and celebrated authors of his time. He was very interested in spiritualism, going to seances, and I think he was involved in the Cottingley Fairies. I've done a thing about that on a True Supernatural channel. If you're ever interested in that, at the bottom of the YouTube channel for uh, this one, classic ghost stories you'll see links to my other channels great and small mainly small um and he wrote historical novel science fiction he reminded me you remember for um, at christmas we did the pilgrim by sir frederick forsyth which was also about an airplane and also had lots of detail about the mechanics because clearly both and, and i think frederick forsyth he, he was very famous in his novels for giving people information about mechanics and about um politics and and how things worked and i think conan doyle this is as well maybe men particularly like that you know they were you know let's not generalize but men are more interested in engines than women generally not everybody i'm not massively interested in engines and 
you know, I knew a woman who was, who was in the Pioneer Corps of the Army, and she was very interested in engines. So just what I said is rubbish. Anyway, so um, Conan Doyle wanted to kill off um, your man Holmes, and he killed him off in the final problem, but because that was his bed and bread and butter, and he may have got death threats from, just imagine if he'd done that these days, and imagine what YouTube and Twitter would be like. They would make the poor man's life not worth living. He'd have to write more. People have, you know, like, you will write more or we will plague you to death. Anyway, that's Conan Doyle. He, he's, um, he was just Arthur Conan Doyle, and he became Sir Arthur um, in 1902 when he was knighted by King Edward VII for his services, but not as a writer, as a volunteer army doctor during the Boer War. He passed away on July 7th, 1930, at the age of 71. So he was a massively, massively um, thing. This story was published in... It says it was published in 1913 as part of a collection of stories called Danger and Other Stories. I'm not sure that's true. I took this from uh, Tales of Terror and Mystery, which was available on Project Gutenberg. I don't know if you know Project Gutenberg. They make loads of ebooks for free, classic stuff that's uh, in the public domain. You can get it all there uh, and get, you know, often facsimiles. So I get an ebook, but I think they've got facsimiles. So, you know, thank you to them for doing that it's a massive amount of work they do so it's it's really fantastic that they do do it so what is to say the so in general terms what what do i think about the story i think the story's okay it's it is science fiction really isn't it it appears to me if we're going to slot it in a genre those things don't exist i don't think in the upper air i've never seen anywhere been flying around not that i fly around tremendously but you know people do i do if you can hear there's a kind of party atmosphere the sun has come out and this is a massively unusual experience in Carlisle so everybody in fact all the men in the north of England and Scotland and probably Ireland and Wales maybe the southwest of England will have maybe parts of London will have taken their shirts off or they'll be wandering around and by the end of the day they'll be horribly pink burned and they won't learn and they'll be drunk because it's sunny and, and what they do on a sunny Saturday is uh, they take the shirts off and they drink and so they wake up the next day feeling really unwell and are burned um, and have to get lots of after-sun cream. Or, no, I was going to say something stupid like volleyball, oil, but they don't. Just, I don't think they probably use after-sun cream. Of course, I work in a GP surgery now, and, and often um, people say to me, again, often men, not always men, got to be careful. And they're like, um, they go, well, I don't want to take those tablets. Or why not? Well, they might help. No, no, I don't like I don't like taking tablets. So I say to them, um, so if you have a headache, do you take paracetamol? I think you in America they call it tilin, tilinol, something like that. A common painkiller. And they go, no. I go, why not? So you rather suffer with a with a headache? Yeah. Why? It's not going to do you any harm. Cause and it's something about being tough, isn't it? So then I say, so say you broke your leg and you go to hospital and they say, right, we're going to put a plaster uh, cast on this. Would you accept it or would you go, no, I'm going to tough it out and walk on a broken bone? You know, so it's it's ludicrous, isn't it? I don't know how I got into that, but this is one of my... I have a, at work, as you can imagine, I have a whole set of things, of peeves that, <laughs> that annoy me. Um, I have a whole set of peeves that are related to doing the podcast, which which I spout off every now and again. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm going to try not to do that now. But at work, I have a whole different one, and that's one of them. They're only little, they're only tiny things, it's not the end of the world, but I'm like, oh, come on. It's like people turn up 
And, you know, with our health service, we're oversubscribed. We haven't got enough doctors, blah, blah, blah. Lots of reasons for that. Uh, but people come in to go, they, honestly, they come in to go, um, what, one girl came in with a, t an, a twitching ear. Like, what? You know, or I had a bloke come in when I was doing my training, my advanced nurse practitioner training, and he came in, and I, I've, got a, I've got a lump on my leg there. Oh, yeah, right, okay. When did that happen? Oh, about four weeks ago. What happened? I was playing football, somebody kicked it. Okay. Does it hurt? No. What do you want me to do about it? Well, I just thought you should have a look. Like, why? But anyway, there we are. In general terms, if you're ill, it'll either go away and you'll be fine, or it'll get worse and you'll die, or you'll just be really ill. So you can, most of the time, it's just going to go away. So this is not health advice, by the way, but this is my observation, and, and this is what we say. You know, if it gets bad, come and see us when it's bad. If it's not bad, just don't bother. So there we are. But but if I guess if it's a private medical thing and you've got the money, then yeah, fine. You know, come in. You've got a bump in your leg. £400. Thank you. Um, I One of the women I worked with was a, um, a secretary in a private hospital. And she said her consultant used to keep people on who, who were not ill uh, and used to prescribe them all sorts of stuff. And they would always be there because they were paying a lot of money. So um, there was no real need for that. Not that I'm suggesting them, um, things are corrupt. Yeah, I suppose I am, aren't I? Funnily enough, I was talking to... I realised I should take his name out, so I did. Uh, who Who's a criminal lawyer, and he was saying that um, there's a thing at the moment whereby... And he said it's, it's widely known that you can... If you do the first report of a criminal case, you can work out how much it's going to cost by how many pay, how thick it is. So he says the criminals themselves... The, the, not just people who've just stolen a can of beans, but, you know proper career criminals they proper criminals you know what i mean um they look at it and they go right that's worth thirty thousand pounds to us to a lawyer so they ring a lawyer and they go right you can have my case it's worth thirty thousand pounds to you you give me five grand so they actually sell their criminal cases to lawyers and the lawyers buy them because they know they're going to make 25 grand out of it so uh yes so of course it's worth giving a, a commission i suppose you'd call it to the criminal this is apparently massively widespread and people don't talk about it, although everybody knows about it, you know. So what a world we live in, eh? And he was telling me about, you know, not all the police, um, but lots of the police are corrupt. They're, you know, they steal things. They go into your house after there's been a burglary and they steal things. And funnily enough, my I worked with a guy who's, um, whose wife's husband, so his father-in-law, no, his wife's dad, get with me, uh, he worked for the Metropolitan Police in London years ago, years and years ago, and he said that on, on the serious crime squad, they went to a bank, they, you know, they would just go and help themselves. And then, I don't know if any of this is true, but it, it was told to me as if it were true. And they, then they would say, oh, that was stolen as well. And actually that jewellery or something was in the back pocket of the police had been there. Not, clearly, one doesn't want to believe that everybody is corrupt. Bus drivers, you know, the guy who washes my windows, does he really wash my windows uh, or does he just charge me? £15 a month. I don't think £15 a month is too bad because uh, he seems a nice young lad. Anyway, I don't know where I've got with this. but So there we are, there we are. I'm stacking these up in advance because I'm away. So it is actually not even June now, but by the time you hear this, it'll be a month's time. I will be walking across the historic landscapes of the southern England and uh, taking in the white horses, cutting the, looking at some crop circles probably if there are any, going to Avebury and Wayland Smithy and because, you know, Sheila and me, we like that kind of thing. 
and um, maybe having a pint uh, in a old country pub in the deepest countryside and by the River Thames uh, in Goring or somewhere like that. Um, I wonder if it really will be because I say this before, you know, there is this dream of England, which probably is no longer true. And I also say this as well. I'll I tell you what, I, I came across this on Twitter. There was a, a doctor tweeted and he was um, an Afghan and uh, he had been going to work in the in city in the UK and he overheard some children speaking Dari, one of the um, Afghan languages, his own language. And it was such a pleasant surprise and rem reminded them of home. And he taught, and, and I thought about how the sense of home is really important to people and how home goes. So the home that he grew up in is probably not there anymore, given the Taliban and people like that. And so, and that happens also um, to all of us. So whatever you love, you lose. And I, I need to end on a happier note than that. I mean, that is just, I think it's about submitting to that and go, well, that's the way it is. And other good things come. We've got a sunny day. I'm going to go out, take my shirt off, get some lager, start chanting, possibly get in a fight um, like everybody else. There'll be plenty of fights to be had and, and have a really good time. Oh, that might not be considered by most people as uplifting either. So let me, uh, so the puppies are well. I'm, I'm trying to think of something good. They are very, they're lazy. No, Jasper is a lazy boy and uh, Ruby's very eager to please. She wants to please. And he, I take him for a walk. He doesn't want to go. He plants his feet. No, he looks at me. I say, Jasper, there's some long grass here. You love long grass. He likes to roll in it. No. So I pick, he doesn't say that, obviously. He just does it with his eyes. And so I pick him up. And then eventually he kind of gets the idea that uh, we are going on a walk. And then um, they visit their mother. It's just like me. I visit my mother. and But the two sisters are there as well. So there's a wonderful picture that Liam had sent me of a video of them all, five of them out in a field, like a little pack. And um, the puppies are there. And she is very tough with them. She's tougher than I am with them. And probably that's good because she's trying to knock some manners into them. But I don't think it's appropriate for me to roll my puppies over and bite their throats like she does. I think the RSPCA would get involved if I was doing that. So I don't do that. I just I just look at them and I go, oh, I'm, I'm so disappointed. Couldn't you make kinder choices? That's when he's bitten my ear or, or she's bitten my ear. My daughter's a teacher. She's giving it up because it's awful. Um, they're working 80-hour weeks for next to no money. And it's really hard work. And it's heartbreaking, that really. But she's got another job. So she's happy. It's just a shame what's happening to our schools. The, the roads are full of holes. Nothing works. We need to get it to work again. That's as political as I'll get. I'm not proposing a solution. It's probably if you if we do it with crystals, okay? If all of us just have really big crystals and um, we we channel their energy, everything will be okay. All right, this has been a particularly insane ramble, but it's probably because I'm looking forward to going on holiday and it's sunny. So, yep, shirt off, four cans of special brew, Wandering down the street, looking for fun. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody dies, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried to do the I invite you to consider becoming a patron of the podcast. 
Patreons perform a really useful task for me in that they give me the wherewithal, the finance through their contributions to enable me to devote time to producing stories for you. So it's actually really helpful if you want to hear more stories. And um, there is a big, on Patreon, there is a big uh, backlog of stories, a big library of stories that you can access by becoming a patron. You can download them as well, which is more difficult on podcasts than on YouTube. But if you want to become a patron, you get the double whammy of supporting my work, which enables me to do more work. Imagine that. You pay me to do more, and I do more work for you and produce more stories for you. Which is, and, and you know, I appreciate it. So you get my love and gratitude. And also, you get access to a big backlog of stories and members only stories. Every month, I do at least one members only story. So it's kind of a really good thing to do. And I would just like to invite you to consider becoming a Patreon. It's hard to say links, but this is www.patreon.com forward slash. Barkid, B-A-R-C-U-D. That's me. See you there.